everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, we had three more MLS playoff games last night. How's it going? I'm good. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. We're up We're up and at him, ready to record this one, get it out there, because um, that was the final three games in the first round of a wild and wacky MLS Cup first round. We're already through the majority of these playoff games, and so we're on now into the second round, or we will be very soon. But you're right, we finished up that first round yesterday. It was last night, uh, as we're recording it now, with Toronto FC and Nashville, with Philadelphia and New England, and with Seattle LAFC. Three really interesting matchups with a lot of tactical wrinkles to them. We're going to talk about all of that. we got to start at the beginning. We're going to go chronologically. Toronto FC and Nashville SC. Nashville winning this game, one to nothing, as the seventh seed going up to Connecticut and beating Toronto FC. What a story. Before we get into the tactics of this whole game, and we will talk about that, for for Nashville to be winning this game, I mean, they beat Inter-Miami, a game that they were largely expected to win. Then they go in and play Toronto, and they look like the better team for the vast majority of 120 minutes. That is truly, truly impressive. I would agree. And I think we saw in both the first two games where it was both the the top seeds in the East who hadn't played a game in over two weeks against teams who just had played on Friday. And I think a lot of the times you're thinking, okay, well, maybe there's a little fatigue factor, but I don't think that that comes into play this year since this year teams were playing every three, four days. And so you kind of get into that rhythm. I thought TFC, both TFC and Philly, I'm just going to go general here real quick. I thought they both looked not as up to the task as their opponents in these games, especially starting the game. They weren't uh, at the same level of intensity, and it really ended up hurting both teams throughout the – either it was 90 minutes or 120 minutes. It was was crazy to see both those teams come out a little tentative. Yeah, Toronto in this game specifically looked disinterested in defending at times, and I think that's been – I think that's been a calling card of theirs throughout this season and maybe even in parts of years past – because they have so many players who want the ball and want to do things with the ball. I mean, Michael mm-hmm. Bradley starts in the center of midfield next to Jonathan Osorio in this game in a, a 4-2-3-1 that changes in possession, but that's the base shape. He starts in that spot, and when you have Michael Bradley, that kind of sets the tone for how your team's going to play. He stepped in and won some balls defensively occasionally, but he's not, he's not a ball winner. They don't have guys mm-hmm. defensively or really in any of the spots on the field besides maybe Nick DeLeon and a couple of the defenders that I would say are really nose to the grindstone, kind of, you know, going to press you and win the ball back after they lose it. And I think that hurts them at times. And that's funny that you mentioned DeLeon, because I feel like when they took him off the field, they looked significantly worse defensively as well later on in the game. Yeah, and we'll get we'll get into that. I think let's start at the beginning. Nashville come out, and, and Toronto is controlling the ball. They have possession. They have the vast majority of possession in the first mm-hmm. 30 minutes, in the first half, even extending into the second half. But Nashville somehow managed to find the balance. And this is hard to do, I I think at least. They found the balance between not having the ball, but also still controlling the game, right? Would you agree Uh with me, Jordan? They kept Toronto in front, and they were able to to have them move the ball back and forth, but into spaces and into spots where Toronto were comfortable with that. They sat deep in a a 4-4-2 block, occasionally stepping up to press, but their defensive structure was solid. And it made life really difficult for Toronto to break in behind their lines and find gaps in the attack in the final third. So difficult that I think Greg Vanny had just about had enough when he did that uh, second half 
mid mid game interview uh, with with the Fox Sports crew. Nashville's SC's defending. Nashville's defending is so solid and so quick that they make life difficult for even some of the best possession teams in MLS. And they make it difficult because, Joe, when you're talking about their defensive structure and especially that low block, I think is what you're talking about, yeah. correct? Yep. When they're in the low block and they're in two banks of four with two attackers at the top of it, so a 4-4-2, and sometimes one of those attackers drops in, so it's like a 4-5-1, would you say that? Sure, yeah. I mean, it happens like that for sure over the course of a game. Yeah. So when they're in that, they are so good at checking their shoulders, seeing where the passing lanes could potentially be for any given player that's in their vicinity, in their zone. And I think what we saw this a lot with, especially Dax McCarty, is he would know where the passing lane was because he checked his shoulder. And so as the ball, when TFC had the ball and they're moving it, say, from the left side of their attack around to the right side, he would check his shoulder and see where those attacking players were beyond him, closer to his own goal. And as the ball switched the point of attack and looked then to penetrate through the midfield line into the defensive line, he would actually leave the gap open for them to think that they could play it and then come and pick the pass off as the ball was played, which is such a genius thing. And I think he might be one of the best players to do that in all of Major League Soccer, to expose the gap, say, all right, go ahead and, go ahead and play it. I'm going to tempt you. I'm going to tempt you. And then to go and intercept it. I think he led the the team and both teams in interceptions in the game. I like that you mentioned Dax McCarty there because I was zeroed in. I was focusing on the relationship between Dax McCarty and Brian Anunga in this game. No Anibal Godoy. He's out with a hamstring mm-hmm. injury. So it's Anunga coming in and, and stepping into that role as the, the other defensive midfielder next to Dax McCarty. And I was curious about how they were going to function together. But more than that, I was curious about how they were going to work to defend Alejandro Pozuelo because he has been the best number 10 in Major League Soccer this season. And we're going to talk about right. more high-quality number 10s even in this episode. There are a lot mm-hmm. of them now in MLS, which is really, honestly, really great. But Pozuelo yeah. has been the top guy in the league this season, likely the, the still the league MVP even after Toronto bow out of this one. And so I was watching to see how Anunga and, and McCarty dealt with Pozuelo in that zone. Because if you think about their shapes overlapping each other, like they do when Toronto's in possession, it's that number 10 who's really kind of moving back and forth between those two sixes for Nashville SC in yeah. their 4-4-2. And so watching those two guys deal with Pozuelo was fascinating. It was a constant push and pull throughout these 90, 120-plus minutes, however long those guys were in on the field <laughs> right. together. And I think Nashville did an excellent job of containing him. They were so strong, constantly checking their shoulders. Like you said, mm-hmm. Jordan, they were looking for um, the, the angles that they needed to close down. And, and McCarty and Anunga would look for Pozuelo and follow him a little bit, step out of their shape, just to deny him the ball, such that Pozuelo had to start moving to find different pockets of space because he couldn't get the ball behind those two players. Toronto had to go to to major lengths to get him on the ball, but really they they only did it a few times using a third man, Altador, De Leon, to come in and distract McCarty yeah. and Anunga. They only did that a couple of times to slip Pozuelo in behind and get him into that central attacking zone. But man, credit to Nashville for largely shutting Pozuelo out. And I know it's not his best game, but I think a lot of the reason for that was how Nashville approached defending him in this game. I think that's a good point. And and one of the things even to extend on that slightly is when do, when Pozuelo can't get the ball in that zone where he wants to in between the sixes or right next to the sixes and he does come a little bit deeper, he can be dangerous there. But I think what Nashville didn't do is they didn't allow his movement to pull them out of their shape. 
So if he did come deep and try to get the ball in front of the midfielders, they just they just passed him off to somebody else, tracked his movement, and and made sure they didn't get so sucked into the ball that they didn't know where he was at all all times. I actually don't think it was a good game from Pozuelo. He had opportunities that we've seen him have and put away, and not even hit the frame of net or frame of goal, which I would I was shocked. So if you know. If he's on, it might be a slightly different game, but it was just one of those things. Maybe the frustration of not being able to get on the ball as much leads to some of those chances not going his way. But I thought it was kind of eerie how he just really wasn't on his game. Speaking of chances, as the second half moves forward, we start to see chance after chance after chance for Nashville. They, I mean, they start battering Toronto, really. They have three, four, five incredible opportunities to score a goal at the end of the second half. And spoiler alert, this game goes to extra time. So Nashville did not convert any of those chances in the second half. But for you, Jordan, why? I'm, I'm not as interested in why Nashville didn't finish. Soccer's hard. Scoring goals is hard. There are going to be times mm-hmm. where you're missing fluky chances like that repeatedly in a game consecutively. You're going to miss those things over and over again. But for Toronto, what, what changed or for Nashville? What did you think changed that allowed them to go forward and be more effective in their ability to create chances in the attack? I felt like they, you mentioned uh, Michael Bradley and defensive, defensive responsibilities. And I think what happened is one of the things that I thought Nashville did really well in the second half is they, when they regained possession in their defensive half, so Toronto had the ball, they regained the possession, and there tends to be a quite a number of Toronto players right around the ball when they lose it because they play in such intricate um, passing patterns and they're really close to the ball trying to help and create angles. So in those moments where Toronto loses the ball and Nashville regains it, I thought Nashville did a good job of almost inviting that counter pressure from TFC and saying, all right, we're going to play maybe maybe it's Dax McCarty dribbling out of one, one bit of p- – Uh, pressure or playing a small pass just to relieve a little bit of pressure and shift Toronto and see if they can hunt a little bit. And after that, it was, it was typically a long ball to try to bypass then a huge amount of uh, players for TFC who were counter pressing together and create an overload between uh, their players. It was Mukhtar and Cadiz or Rios or, uh, even Mule coming inside and trying to overload that space by Bradley and making it difficult to um, win the second ball. I mean, you talk about their second ball structure, but I think it was their willingness to invite pressure in their defensive half, clear that pressure, and then flood forward. Like they were sprinting with like a, a fire within them that I, I thought was so impressive. You could really tell that they were confident they could win this game. I wonder what happens with Toronto FC's roster. After this game, I wonder if they try to reshape this thing because their talent is there in a lot of different ways. They have really high quality attacking guys. Pozuelo, Piatti, I really enjoyed watching this year. Altador, if he can get healthy. Akinola. I mean, they have guys in the attack, even in midfield. Jonathan Osorio and Michael Bradley can still contribute in a lot of different ways and along the back line as well. They have talent, but clearly there is something missing. I think we've seen it too Mm -hmm. many times this year. We've seen teams blitz Michael Bradley, or we've seen teams break through their counter pressure too many times this year for Greg Vanny and Toronto FC to come back, just come back and do the same thing again next year and expect a different result. Although in a, in a non-2020 year, it is possible that they get that different result. But I think about that. I wonder, is there, a, is there a player, is there a position that they would need to upgrade to allow them to to elevate their defensive game to stop 
giving up chances like they did so quickly at the end of this game. I mean, it was Mukhtar missing an open header. It was Randall Leal hitting mm-hmm. a volley from close range. I, I don't know if you remember the one I'm talking about, Jordan, but he slaps that ball inside the box and it goes over the top right corner of the goal. If it had found the back of the netting, that would have yes. been ridiculous. But it's Leal missing that chance. It's Alex Mule missing a header from close range after Nashville, again, carved right through the middle of Toronto's defense when they recovered the ball. None of those chances find the back of the net. But they do yeah. foreshadow what happens in the 108th minute. This is Daniel Rios getting his goal for Nashville SC in the playoffs, his first ever playoff goal for the MLS club on this play. It's Rios who outmuscles Chris Mavinga. Not easy to do. He outmuscles Chris Mavinga. Yeah. He gets him off the ball and then gets on the ball himself, plays it forward to Mukhtar, who weaves away from a handful of Toronto defenders and shoots. Westbrook half saves that initial shot, but he can't parry it wide. So it's a really easy follow-up for Rios and Nashville go up one to nothing in extra time and never relinquish that lead. What a goal. I mean, Mokhtar shows so much composure on the ball after Rios shows that initial strength. That's, I mean, that's well played to Nashville. I also think that it was well played because Mokhtar did a good job of knowing his strengths versus the strengths of the players that he was against. There were three players there, but I think he knew that he could go 1v1. The central of those players was... Omar Gonzalez. And if he went 1v1 with him in that precarious position where he's running forwards, Omar Gonzalez is kind of on this half, um, this half stride facing his own net, trying to push Mukhtar out of the way. You either have to tackle perfectly, you have to let the player go, or you have to slow him up enough for someone around you to get pressure. And it just was none of those things. The players, even though there were three players around there, Mukhtar still just bet on himself. And I think that's what I take away from this is Nashville just kind of bet on themselves. Like we can do this there. We've got nothing to lose. Let's go out and just really try to make TFC feel uncomfortable. Nashville did just that. And they will likely continue to do that in their next round against the Columbus crew. Jordan, we'll talk about that game as it, as it, happens later this month it'll be on november 29th (laughs) they're playing again the columbus crew in the eastern conference semifinal round this episode is supported by fx's welcome to wrexham celebrity owners rob McElhenney and ryan reynolds's small town welsh football club has finally been promoted into league two after 15 seasons in the national league dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham premieres May 2nd on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Another Eastern Conference team on to the Eastern Conference semifinal round is the New England Revolution. They beat the Philadelphia Union, the Supporters' Shield winners, 2 to nothing in Philadelphia in this game. Actually, I don't know if the stadium's in Philadelphia. It's probably not. It's probably just outside Philadelphia. Chester. Yeah, Chester. I should have known that. They beat the Philadelphia Union in Chester, Pennsylvania. This game overlapped, weirdly, with the Nashville-Toronto game on Mm -hmm. Fox. And so it was hard for me, and I'm guessing a lot of listeners, to catch the beginning of this one. But you went back and watched it, Jordan. What did you see from the revolution that set the tone from this game right from the start? Well, 
I had to go back and watch because all of the goals are scored in that first part <laughs> yeah. where where we were watching two games and I, I just needed to focus more of my energy on it. So I am going to say the game plan from New England Revolution against Philly's uh, 4-4-2 diamond was so smart. And here's really what I was noticing. So in the in the first, uh, I would say, I rewatched the first 25, 30 minutes where the, all the goals were scored. And I really was keying into how is New England in a 4-2-3-1 or what have we called it also? 4-4-1-1. I mean, they kind of look like they're in a it's different fluid, thing. Right? It depends. Yeah, d- it depends on what Gustavo Bo is doing at any certain moment. Um, but they were defending in a 4-4-2 block. And what was important is how the relationship between the outside back and the outside midfielder in that 442 block. So let's just say we're on the right side and those players are Buchanan and Carlos Hill. And they're going up against an opposing team, Kai Wagner and Jamiro Montero. All right. Jamiro Montero is the, the outside part of the diamond for Philadelphia and Wagner is the outside back. So instead of letting Wagner have so much space on the ball and Buchanan staying deep, Buchanan actually would leave his his back line in possession for Philadelphia, and Buchanan would go and step up all the way on Kai Wagner, not let him have any space, which Wagner is a player, and we've seen, I think we can all go back to that game where they slapped Toronto, and Wagner's running down with no pressure in the, in the channel, trying to, um, crossing the ball and eventually getting an assist for Philly. He likes to have the game in front of him. He likes to have space in front of him that he can run into and gain some momentum. And Buchanan and Carlos Heel said no. So if, if Carlos Heel then comes out wide and he's the first player to go get pressure on Wagner and not allow him that space, Buchanan then comes inside and marks Montero. So those two were constantly flipping, but making sure those two players in the channels always had pressure on them. Same for the other side with Bunbury and Dewan Jones. And I just thought it was a really interesting game plan by Bruce Arena saying, all right, we're going to go 2v2, our two center backs against the two forwards for Philadelphia, and everybody else in the midfield is going to have these specific roles where they know the outside players cannot have space because if they do, they're going to be able to carve us up and find the right pass. It was genius. And then it also created really good outlet play for Philadelphia by knowing that if they win the ball in those situations, they can get numbers flanking Jose Martinez and they can always play the ball to one side or the other of Jose Martinez and then be out on the break. It was it was really smart. The New England Revolution didn't back down from this game from the very beginning. They went toe to toe or even, you know, their toe was stronger than the Union's toe. I don't like that. (laughs) Um, But they, they really did come out strong in this game they, they tried to pin the union's back line back they pinned them back in wide areas and one thing I noticed from the from the opening stages of this game the revolution did spend a lot of time playing wide playing outside of the wide. diamond right and I think yeah. that's important and I love how that was involved in everything you just said there Jordan because if you think about the Philadelphia Union their strongest area we talked about this a little bit on the total soccer show yesterday talking about What happens when you have four midfielders in the middle of the field as central midfielders? When you Mm -hmm. play with a diamond or when you play with a box, I mean, you have stacked numbers in the middle of the field. 
But where are the weaknesses? The weaknesses are most of the time out wide on either side, the right side or the left side, because that's not where the diamond operates. The diamond operates in the middle of the field. And the Revolution knew that. They came into this game having played the Union, what, five, six times already this season? Yes. They were very aware of the strengths and weaknesses of the Union's defensive setup. And Bruce Arena and company, I don't know if he was the tactical mastermind, if the players just went out there and executed and he told them to go play hard, fight, win, whatever the speech was. They Mm -hmm. had numbers wide to play around the diamond. They said, okay, you can stack numbers in the middle. That's fine. We're just not going to play in the middle. We have no issue with that. We're going to play down the wing. We're going to pull your numbers out uh, when you when you have your own players back and wide. And we're going to attack down those spaces. We're going to attack on set pieces. We're going to attack in dead ball moments. The Revs did all of those things well, and they just avoided the strongest part of the Union's game plan, which is a huge part of winning any game, making sure that the other team's uh-huh. strengths are minimized. And they did a great yeah. job of that. Yeah. Not only that, I thought there were certain times where the revolution did a good job of if they were attacking in one channel of switching the point of attack quickly by if you imagine the diamond of Philadelphia centrally and the where you would draw lines from one point to the other. So those lines on a diamond, not where the end points are. They played through those lines really well. So it was Carlos Heel finding the ball playing it in between Aronson and Jamiro Montero and threading that seam so well. And so I felt like the players playing in the middle were constantly just shape-shifting to find the seams and not be man-to-man. It was a really nice little shift from um, Gustavo Bo or uh, I thought that the two holding midfielders for New England who I've given, you know, I've been questioning, are they up for the challenge of of playing some of the best teams in the league? I thought they played really well and um, did a good job of setting the pace defensively but also keeping the ball when they're attacking and switching the point of attack for them. I've got... uh... Before we get to the Revolution's goals or even what what happened to the Union in this game and what went wrong for them, I do want to talk about one of those holding midfielders for the New England Revolution. It's Scott Caldwell. He comes into this game. He didn't start the last game. It was Tommy McNamara who started against the Montreal Impact. But Bruce Arena has Scott Caldwell in this game as one of the, the two deeper central midfielders, playing as one of the central defensive midfielders that allows the rest of New England's attacking guys, those other four, Bunbury, Bo. Buxa and mm-hmm. Huel to move and, and kind of do whatever they want in those higher attacking spaces. Scott Caldwell's job, as I saw it in this game, was to shadow Brendan Aronson. Brendan Aronson for the Union was really the only bright spot in the first 10, 15, 20 minutes of this game. He has a nice flick on the right side of the field, then drives into the box and serves up a great ball to Montero that, if it had been scored, might have changed this game from the start. But Aronson was bright, and and the Revolution knew that they had to do something about him in this game. And so when you think about Brendan Aronson, Jordan, we've talked about it over and over again on this show. I'm guessing you think about that run that he makes behind the back line, right? Yeah. He's not a traditional number 10. He doesn't come back and find the ball as much as a lot of other number 10s do in this league. Instead, he likes to make that Aronson run in behind the back line to become essentially a part of the front three or to replace a member of the front three. And this works really well for the Union because they'll pull a defender out. They'll have Santos or Shabilko drop and pull a center back with them and then send Aronson into that space. Or or they'll bring the opposing fullback out of position. So they'll, they'll get Dewan Jones or Tejon Buchanan to step out by, by bringing one of their own numbers over there and dragging those defenders out of position and send Aronson wide. And so that's a, that's a really good, solid attacking pattern that the Union have relied on a lot this year. 
And the revolution knew that. They said, okay, we got to be prepared for this. And so that was where Scott Caldwell came into things. He shadowed Aronson when he started to make that run behind the line. So if a center back dropped out of position or was pulled out of position by a union forward, Scott Caldwell just added another number into that back line. They didn't Mm -hmm. lose any numbers in the back line almost at all in this game. If a fullback got pulled out, if it was Jones or Buchanan who got pulled out, Scott Caldwell filled their gap and went with Aronson in behind the back line. The union almost never found Aronson making his classic run in this game. And I think that all had to do with Scott Caldwell's shadowing of him for every single minute that he was in this game. That's a really good observation, and I think it goes back to, we actually talked about this on TSS as well, as defensive rotations, and if a player in your defensive line is pulled out, you're back four, having a holding mid who's comfortable in, in filling that gap temporarily, I think Caldwell did a really good job of that, but he also, by doing that and knowing that he would be um, responsible for that run and stick to it and you could trust him in that role. It allowed Jones and Buchanan to tuck inside and be almost another midfielder, right? And to help with that diamond, it it was either an outside back helping with the diamond or an outside midfielder helping with the diamond, the opposite side. And I I think that having Caldwell take that run, then you could almost go man for man in a lot of areas attacking. Defensively, sorry. Let's talk goals, yeah? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so goal number one for the New England Revolution comes in the 26th minute. It's a free kick from Carlos Hill, who is just incredible. So I enjoy watching him tremendously. But it's a Carlos Hill free kick. He's on the right side of the field, and he likes to whip balls in with his left foot because he is left-footed, and that works out really well in this instance because it's Buxa who comes around, gets in the box, and finishes off that ball in, that left-footed ball from Carlos Hill to score the opening goal. It's Buxa's header that gets New England on the board. But I want to go deeper than that. You know, it could be easy to just toss out a set piece and think, okay, they scored on a free kick. That's bad marking by the union or whatever. But if you if you go back and rewatch this goal, and I did several times because I was trying to figure out what happened, there are mm-hmm. so many moving pieces. And, and the design, the free kick set piece design here from the New England Revolution is so good. Jordan, I don't know if you noticed this, and you can hop in at any time. It's a, it's a line of five Revolution players along the box, lined up along the edge of the 18-yard box. And Buxa was the player at the end of the line. He's furthest away from Carles Hill. Right before Hill steps up to take this set piece, Buxa starts to loop around the front of the box. So he comes around towards Hill and, and towards the rest of the players in that line. And then he starts to curve his run into the box. So he's making a bending run outside the front of the box, the top of the box. And then he turns and starts running into the box. So he's made a, a semicircle. And he uses the other four players in the line as a screen. Those guys do a basketball screen, essentially, and push the union's defenders deeper and deeper into the box, giving Buxa the opportunity to rise up and get that free header. It's a screen. It's a set-piece design that allows Buxa to get on the ball, get his head on the ball, and get the ball in the back of the net. I didn't notice that first part that you were mentioning, but I did notice, I believe it was Polster who's right in front of him as they're going into the box. So when you're watching Buxa score the goal, Polster is just a few maybe a foot in front of Buxa and that first run that initial run if he doesn't get there and get in front of Buxa I don't think he has the space like you mentioned that it's kind of a screen but it's also pulling players further to that near post because that's the most dangerous area because Andre Blake can't get out for it the defenders can't get back in time that's where you want the ball to be sent and so one the ball is genius 
two, that near post run in front of him by Polster is so important to separate and allow Buxa to then rise and win the ball. It was a really, I agree, it was a really good set-piece play. Yeah, top, top notch. And, and the Revolution scored their second goal of this game off of another dead ball situation. Instead of a free kick or a set-piece, it's a throw-in. It's Tejon Buchanan's goal in the 30th minute. We've talked about throw-ins a lot on this show in the past. Mm-hmm. And the Revolution have a throw-in on the far side of the field. It's Dewan Jones who takes it, and he throws it into Buxa, who then heads it back to Bunbury on that far side still. And then Bunbury plays it into the middle of the field for Carles Hill. But, but it's not that important that Hill is in the middle of the field. It's more important where he is in relation to the Union's midfield diamond that we talked about before. So, yes, mm-hmm. Hill is in the middle of the field, but more importantly, he's outside the diamond. He is in space on the far side of the field. Because the Union's shape is so narrow and they're all compressed against the sideline— yes. Heel is just roaming and hanging out in a lot of space outside the furthest Union defender. And so he gets on the ball. It's Bunbury who plays the ball to Heel, who's able to turn with no one really in front of him. He plays the ball wide to Buchanan, who stepped high as the right back. And Buchanan beats Kai Wagner in the box and scores. It's so well executed, so well designed. The, the Revolution, knowing that the space they want to play in, is outside the diamond. They do it perfectly, getting their playmaker on the ball getting the ball forward into the box and winning a 1v1 battle. It is, mm-hmm. it's perfect. Yeah, it really is. And it, it talks about those, that, those seams that I was saying, playing through those outside line seams of the diamond. And from there, if you're on the other side of it, like you were saying, Carlos Hill was, there's going to be tons of space. And New England exploited the space so well. New England are going to be hard to beat. I, I think I might have said the same thing about Nashville, but those two teams are, are legit. In this Eastern Conference, we talked about the, the top four, the top five teams throughout a lot of this season with the Union and Toronto and Orlando and Columbus and NYCFC even thrown in there. Now we've got New England and Nashville making real runs mm-hmm. in the playoffs. New England will play Orlando City in the second round, in this Eastern Conference semifinal round. And Orlando is not going to have an easy match in that one at all. No, yeah. Both of the Eastern Conference matchups, I think, are going to be really good. And the thing that um, you look at both these teams, they both have... MLS Cup winning experience leading them. And I think what's important about that is they they might not, if you're looking at the East, they might not have the best rosters, but they have players who are willing to execute game plans. And I think that that's what we're seeing here in these first two play-in games from both those squads. And before we go to Seattle LAFC, I want to I fess up here. The New England Revolution are way better than I thought they were. With Carlos Hill back, this team is different. They have real talent. Yeah. You talked about their roster not being as good as some of the rest of the Eastern Conference teams. I agree with that, but I do want to say the Revolution's roster is better than I thought it was. They have real talent yeah. and above-average MLS players, I think, at a lot of different spots, and that combined with smart game plans. And again, I think credit to Bruce Arena, smart game plans totally. that he's instilling in this team, they're winning games, and they're hard to stop. Mm-hmm. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, 
courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Flipping over Mm -hmm. to the Western Conference. We've talked Eastern Conference so far. We've got Seattle Sounders and LAFC. Seattle winning 3-1 to in this game up front. LAFC missing a number of players due to COVID, which is a reminder of where we are as a society, as a world, still dealing with this. It, It showed very clearly with LAFC. They're missing Diego Rossi and Brian Rodriguez and other players as well in this game. Bob Bradley has to put out a lineup that I'm guessing he would have liked to look differently in this game. But it, it is what it is. And the Seattle Sounders win this uh-huh. game by multiple goals. Seattle never stops, Jordan. I don't know I don't know how you beat this team. I think I asked Stu Holden that when he came on the show. Uh, I, asked, I made him play opposition analysis of, of some kind, and he was an analyst trying to stop a team. I think it was Seattle. It's been too long. But Seattle <laughs> doesn't stop. They are so hard to beat. Their attacking players are so good. What did you see from them in this game? I think Seattle's a really interesting team because they're pretty comfortable not having the ball at times and in their defensive structure. So even when a team, an opposing team feels like they're getting an advantage with having possession of the ball or um, starting to get into the attacking third and gaining some momentum, Seattle's pretty confident that when they win the ball, they're going to have an outlet in Nico Ladero and they're going to create something out of nothing and create something in the space that then is they've created because they've let a team push against them and they've dropped a little bit deeper defensively. So I think that that's one of the hardest things about Seattle is you look at their players and you're like, oh, they're going to want the ball. They're going to want to keep it and connect. But actually, the thing I wrote is you just can't give Seattle one fast break. Because they will score on you. Yeah. Seattle, let me back up. There are four phases of play in soccer. There's possession. Mm-hmm. There's defensive transition. That's what happens after you lose the ball. You, you press to win it back in modern soccer, at least. So there's possession, defensive transition. There's defending. So after you, you maybe failed at that defensive transition, you got to track back. You sit in your block, and you go from there. So there's possession, defensive transition, defending, and then offensive transition. Right after you win the ball back, you go forward quickly. I think the best soccer teams are the teams that can do the most of those phases well. They can do the, the largest number of those phases well repeatedly throughout a season. Mm-hmm. And the Seattle right. Sounders showed in this game that they can possess the ball. They showed in this game that they can defend in transition. They stopped LAFC a number of times in their transition attacks. They showed in this game, and we've already known a lot of these things, but it was emphasized again here. They showed that they can defend in a defensive block and make life difficult for the opposing team. And then when they win the ball defensively, they can counterattack really, really, really well. Yeah. That's all four phases, Jordan. The Seattle Sounders, I think, are the closest team in Major League Soccer to, to being above average or borderline excellent at all four phases of play. And I think that's why they're so hard to stop. You, you have the ball? Okay, that's fine. They'll sit back and they'll counterattack and score. Oh, oh, you mm-hmm. want them to have the ball? Okay, they'll break you down in possession with some really beautiful one-touch play in the final third to create a goal-scoring opportunity like they did in this game. I mean, this team is so multifaceted. They are really, really hard to stop because they have the ability to impact the game in so many different ways. Yeah, I actually disagree. I don't think they broke anybody down in possession. I thought both of their goals were both of their goals were fast break type of movements and then a corner kick, right? Or would yeah, you I say mean, the first one was possession? 
I, I think that's probably more of a transition moment, but I do think about yeah. chances in this game. They did create chances, yeah. Yeah, and maybe that's what it Sorry, is. Sorry, I just not... had to push back on that. No, I'm please. like, I don't know. I like that I because know. that might be the crack, right? If you put them up against a Nashville team, am I confident that they're going to break mm-hmm. Nashville down? No. Right. Because if Toronto can't do it, I'm not really sure that Seattle can do it. But I think about there was one sequence. I wish I could remember when it was in this game. There's a sequence, and maybe listeners will remember it because it was truly impressive, where Seattle had the ball forward in the box. Ah, I found it in my notes. Good job, past me. It was Christian <laughs> Roldan driving down the right side, playing across in, into the box on the floor to Jordan Morris on the far side of the box, who just one touches it back to an on-rushing Nico Ladero for a first-time shot. I mean, they, have, they had really quick combination play, a really fast possession yeah. play at times in this game. But yeah, Jordan, you're right. That's probably the phase that I think they're least comfortable in. Right. But they still have guys, I think at least, who can do damage in moments. Well, all of it is, their possession is to create space in behind so they can utilize their best players, which is Ladero, Morris, and Rui Diaz. So if you can create some space behind a back line for those three players or in between the lines, then that possession is really to pull a defense out as far up the field as possible. So then they have space in between the back line, the midfield line, and they can create through there because that's where those players operate the best. Seattle Sounders scored three goals in this game. Three to LAFC is one. And they made it really easy for us because it's hard to talk about Seattle without talking about Nico Ladero, number one, Raul Mm -hmm. Ruiz Diaz, number two, and Jordan Mm -hmm. Morris, number three. Brian Schmetzer called them the big three, I think, after this game. Maybe a Miami Heat reference there. But they score, each, each one of those guys scores a goal. And so, Jordan, if you're up for it, I want to go through each one of these goals and highlight what mm-hmm. happened for each of those big okay. players along the way. So up first is Nico Ladero's okay. goal. Let's zero in on him. It's the 18th minute. Seattle advanced the ball down their right side with a, the hopeful pass up the right wing. And it finds Nico Ladero. He's the outlet in this moment. And he chests the ball down, helping Seattle switch the point of attack away from that congested right side over to Jordan Morris on the left side. So Ladero, to recap, is on the right side of the field, the far side. And play gets switched all the way over to the left side. Not, not all the way wide, but over to the left half space in that left side of the box. As soon as that switch happens, Ladero is busting a gut to get into the box from the right side all the way into the middle of the field to provide Morris a cutback option in the box. And Morris sees him. That's exactly what ends up happening. Morris knows that Ladero is coming. He plays a very simple pass back to Ladero in the box, and it's a first-time finish for Nico Ladero. He runs so far and so fast in this game as a number 10 getting into the box to provide an outlet. What an incredibly unselfish, hardworking player that shines in this moment to get in the box and score a goal. Yeah, and that goal was Ladero, Rui Diaz, and Morris, all a huge part of the play. What I was keying in on is... When Ladero had the ball, I actually didn't know he was that outlet pass. I didn't know he started the whole thing before the ball went wide to Rui Diaz on the right side. And Rui Diaz plays the ball first time, I think. It's such a good ball. But his Rui Diaz's movement off the ball to keep himself alive and to keep himself onside in a lot of moments is so spectacular. In, in this moment, as they're trying to transition, he pulls himself backwards a little bit 
and then wide. It's just, it's not like a button hook run, but it has a little arc to the, his run. And these, his feet are moving so fast, trying to keep himself on side. And then as the ball goes into space, which this is the thing that I'm saying about Seattle is because the ball is played into space for Rui Diaz, he can play it first time. It's an early cross into space for Jordan Morris, where then he can create from there on that far side, which you were saying he, he ends up picking out Ladero. But I think, they utilize their knowledge of space so well that they can capitalize and drag a team then from that that cross ball. Then they drag LAFC so far deep. Latif Blessing gets so far deep to try to defend Morris that then R- Ladero is wide open when he's running in the box. And that should have been Blessing's, Blessing's mark because there were plenty of LAFC defenders back. I appreciate you highlighting Rui Diaz there. I want to highlight Christian Roldan as well in this play. Okay. He's not a member of the big three. Maybe maybe it should be a big four. Maybe not. I don't know. I'll let, I'll let other people decide that. But he makes a run forward similar to the run that Ladero makes. But he also, in making his hard, you know, gut-busting run into the box, he clears space for Ladero. And so he, he forces mm-hmm. the LAFC defenders to, to respect his run, clearing space for his number 10. And that's... That's something that I saw Matt Doyle tweet yeah. about, and I noticed that as well. That's an unselfish play that maybe doesn't get any recognition. But if you had to summarize Christian Roldan in one sentence, it was the sentence I just said. Unselfish yeah. doesn't get all yeah. the recognition. I mean, he does get some some praise out of Seattle, but a really quality player that helps make the attack tick for the Seattle. Did you Sanders. watch his? Re- yeah, did you watch his reaction after the yeah. goal scored? <laughs> he just turned to Rui Diaz and was like, <laughs> he knew how good that ball, the, Rui Diaz's ball was so good yeah. to, to find Morris in space um, before all the defenders got back. And I just love that too, because he's probably felt that, you know, I, I don't get the celebration because everyone's going to Jordan Morris or the goal scorer. So I'm going to go celebrate with the guy who really yeah. started the whole thing. <laughs> On to goal number two in this game. So Seattle are up one to nothing at this point, And it's Raul Ruiz Diaz in the second half in the 66th minute in the aftermath of a corner kick. So Ladero takes the corner as he often does. LAFC get the ball away. But by away, I mean they deflect it to Rui Diaz at the back post who finishes to double Seattle's lead. <laughs> so they don't clear the danger. They don't eliminate this this difficult attacking moment. And Ladero's corner ends up finding Rui Diaz who finishes calmly. He's still a ridiculous goal scorer in playoff moments. Gosh, that finish. It, it gets flicked at the near post, right? They're yeah, trying to clear yeah. it, but it doesn't, it doesn't get good enough out of danger and – to he's running away from the he's trying to get his hips back around in time as the ball's coming. I mean, these are split second decisions for his change of movement to really make sure that the ball doesn't go beyond the far post. He keeps it in play. And so he's running back and at the last moment he swings around and as he swings around his hips, everything gets facing the goal. It is it is just a ridiculous set of skills. And and Rui Diaz is such a complete number nine and does so many little things that um, gosh, he, what a entrant! Like he he comes up big in big moments too. What did they say? That's his sixth playoff goal in seven playoff games something or something. Like that. For it's Seattle? very very high. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I think Jordan. I think oh, we need to. So good. I think we need to start having you rate the difficulty of finishes because you talked about Caden Clark's oh goal gosh. on on our yeah. Monday show and, and the Red Bulls lost to the Columbus Crew and how difficult that finish was to not have him put it over the bar. On this one again, Rui Diaz. I see it and I think, wow, that's that's a that's a good finish. But I don't have the same level yeah. of appreciation for it. So who knows? Maybe on future shows, 
I'll flip it to okay. you for for you to give us a rating out of ten on the difficulty of some of these finishes. Oh, I was gonna say, what's the scale? What's the what's the scale? Okay, ten. All right, that one was pretty up there, but I gotta <laughs> okay. get my I gotta get my base first. We'll work on it. We'll work on it behind the scenes okay. and come out with it in a future episode. <laughs> goal number three for the Seattle Sounders. LAFC have pulled one back at this point with a goal from Eduard Atuesta. A really nice run in the box from him and a really nice yeah. service from Carlos Vela. But then Seattle get back just three minutes after Atuesta scores that goal in the 77th minute. It's Jordan Morris who really finishes this game off. Seattle recovered the ball in their own half. Ladero finds Rui Diaz. I mean, does this sound familiar? Ladero finds Rui Diaz who then finds a sprinting Jordan Morris in behind for the finish. It's those three guys. Yeah. It's Brian Schmetzer's big three that continue to show up. On a personal level, Jordan Morris is really, really, really fast. So fast. <laughs> He's so fast. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think that's what makes it so difficult is those three players have so many different characteristics that are really difficult to defend. And Jordan Morris's left-footed finish is just perfection from where he's at with an onrushing goalkeeper, all those things. But I actually think that this LAFC had just scored a goal. And I think it was a moment where LAFC really felt like they could go win the ball back a little bit higher on the field. They actually created a really nice funnel centrally. Two players on the ball. I, you know, at the top of my head, I don't remember who was on the ball. Maybe Jao Paulo. I'm, I'm not sure, but the ball then gets through the funnel. So the two players for LAFC are squeezing. I think it's, uh, Atuesta, maybe Mark Anthony K and, Janela doesn't get to that outlet player, which is Ladero. That's the only place it could have gone. That's the only place it could have gone. And when you talk about cues and how you're going to defend together, if that funnel is being formed, you have to be at the bottom of it because that's where you can scoop the ball up. And because that, that work doesn't get done, then it's a quick outlet and it's Seattle at their best in space, finding and picking out the right pass at, at speed. Yeah. Yeah, and we haven't said a lot about LAFC in this game, so I'm glad you you mentioned something that they were doing well because they did some some good things. I mean, again, you mentioned also something they didn't do well because Seattle broke out and scored. But talking about some of the opportunities that they were able to create in the second half when they are pushing for this goal, I've got two very quick things on LAFC, and okay. then I'll flip it to you if you want to add anything else, and then we'll wrap up for All today. Right. Cool. LAFC aren't done. They still have CONCACAF Champions League games. Their season weirdly is in this strange limbo time now as they wait for December and wait for those games, just like a few other MLS teams who are now out of the playoffs. But LAFC, I think, approached this game kind of like Dallas approached their game against Portland. They said, okay, okay, Seattle, I, I think your, your worst phase, even though it still might be a good phase, is when you have the ball. And so we're going to let you have the ball, and we're going to try to win the ball in our mid-block of 4-5-1 and then attack quickly from there, an attacking transition. And for us, if you're LAFC, I think they're thinking to themselves, this is kind of a win-win. We force the Seattle Sounders to do something that they're not absolutely top-tier incredible at, and we also don't have to break down their block. We can just win the ball and attack in transition. I think it was a wise game plan from Bob Bradley. I, I think that's likely what he had in mind, or at least somewhat close to it. It didn't end up paying off, but I can see right. I can see what the intention was in that first half especially. Then as they go down, they need to control the ball more, and they start to do some things with the ball but I, a somewhat smart game plan from Bob Bradley, and I wanted to give credit for that. I can see what mm -hmm. he was thinking there. And then quick thing number two, I've talked about it before. Christian Torres, the 16-year-old left winger in this game, I like him a lot. I think he's bright. He's quick and fast over short and long distances. Smooth right foot. He can combine inside and outside in the inner channels or out wide. I think he could be in line for real minutes next year if or when 
LAFC sell Rossi or Rodriguez. So that's my yeah. that's my plug for Christian Torres and my bit of respect for LAFC's game plan. Yeah. I just – the last thing I'll say about LAFC is I feel like they were just a little off. There were so many times where they missed a pass by two feet, a yard, you know, not a, a long ways – but it was like the movements didn't precede the pass. The pass then, there was no anticipation. And I think that when LAFC is at their best, especially when they're attacking, they're a team who is anticipating everything. And they're dictating when they're running into space or where they're creating space. And I just felt like it was a little too... Uh, reactionary and a lot of that had to do with I don't know if it was a movement off the ball or if it was the passing was poor but those two things did not work together and um, I think it was just difficult it was hard to watch it's hard to watch LAFC like this right because you know how good they can be the conference you're right you're right you're very right about that this LAFC team was not the same one that we've seen in years past the conference semifinals are set at this point in the east New England Orlando at the top of the bracket Columbus Nashville at the bottom then on the left side of the Western Conference bracket, you've got Sporting Kansas City and Minnesota United, and then FC Dallas and the Seattle Sounders, who get there by beating LAFC again, 3-1. to one. Jordan, that's it. We're into the next round of the that's playoffs. It. We'll have more analysis of these games as they happen. But for now, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, that was so great. It was good. We're on to the next round. <laughs> oh, yes, we are. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will be back again soon.